Let's talk about sex. I just want to see what it feels like to be dewy. It, uh, it doesn't feel all that great, but uh, no, I really love dewy. We see eye to eye on just about everything. And, uh, what I want to talk about this morning is a theme that I've been working on in my own life now for about four years. And it's the theme of developing a pilgrim's perspective. I want to start off just by looking at a few passages in Scripture where we read about some biblical pilgrims. The first one is in Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you'll turn there. First ten verses. And as you approach this next week that you've been waiting for so long, vacation, I'd like you to remember some of the things that we're talking about this morning so that as we leave this particular environment, as we go into a different environment, that we might still remember our walk with the Lord. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 8 some admonitions to Israel after they have been wandering in the wilderness 40 years. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. I got a call last night from a friend back east who was struggling. Former student, his girlfriend and him were having a few problems. They broke up and he was struggling. He's a youth pastor. He knows what his life should be like as he walks with the Lord. But he was really in a wilderness experience. And as we talked this through last night, we came to this point, realizing that his wilderness experience was to humble him and to test him and to know what was really in his heart and whether he would keep the Lord's commandments or not. This is what Israel went through. This is what you and I go through when we struggle in our wilderness experiences. In verse 3, And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know. You know what manna means in Hebrew? What is it? (laughs) What is it? That's what it means. Fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God, of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. These were pilgrims, wandering, searching for that land. In the book of Hebrews, we read about many of these people who walked by faith in their pilgrimage through many wildernesses. We read about some here in Hebrews 11, verse 13. Let me just read this to you. You can listen along. And these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were 
Here's two words, strangers and exiles on the earth. For they who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. They recognize their proper place in this world as strangers and exiles. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And then we know that familiar verse in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, where Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. A variety of different words were used in these passages. Strangers, exiles, sojourners, aliens. I don't know what you think of when you think of aliens. I'm sure a variety of images come to your mind. As I look at, well, I won't get into that, but... Um, we have a variety of, of images here, pilgrims. And what I want to talk about this morning is perspective, perspective. You know, the spiritual atmosphere that we live in this day, it erodes our faith, it dissipates our hope, it corrupts our love. And there's one word that sums it all up. You know what that word is? The world, the world. And we have a lot of images when we think of the world. And it's easy for us as Christians to think of the world as all of those gross, vile sins that are out there. But one aspect of the world that I think is very harmful to us within the community of the church, and one that is so deceptive in our lives, is that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. That's worldliness. That's a mindset. That's perspective. And perspective is really the key. You know, when things get hard, it'll be your perspective that'll make the difference. We talk a lot about our need to obey. We've had some great lectures in here and messages on following the Lord, the Master's morality, what it means to follow Him, what it means to walk with the Lord. And we talk a lot about our obligations, a lot about our duties as Christians. But sometimes we're not sure what it really means. Obey what? How do we obey? And there are no formulas, there are no five easy steps, no three special verses that answer those questions. It's our perspective that makes the difference. It's what's goes, what goes on in our mind as we walk in this world. And there are three mindsets or three perspectives as I've evaluated my own life and looked around me that Christians can adopt as we walk through this world. One of them is the ideal, the one that we have presented in Scripture, and that is the pilgrim perspective. The other, and the most extreme form, the opposite, is that of a tourist. And I think we're either walking as pilgrims or we're walking as tourists. And I'll explain those in a moment. There's a third one, though, that I'm afraid that I fall into more often than not. And that is being a settler. Being a settler. And I'm not sure if we're going to have time to talk about that one today. If we don't, Russell just have to ask me that. But um, I want to take those two extremes and talk them through. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to travel out of country, in many ways be a tourist. And it was fun to sort of look around me and see other people that were tourists. And you know how tourists are. They uh, basically wear those uh, uh, different you know, clothes from the country. They always have a camera around their, uh, their neck. 
And I'll never forget being up on Masada one day. Betty was there. And uh, we saw a tour group come through, and they all had these little orange beanies on their heads. So out of place, little cone heads, you know. And uh, there's just certain characteristics of being a tourist. Some of you know that I also frequent a little, little monastery just for my own personal retreat to get away, St. Andrew's Priory. And while I'm there, I have an opportunity to see sort of modern-day pilgrims to an extreme with a faulty theology, but nevertheless, these monks who are living somewhat of an ascetic lifestyle. And in many ways, as I observe them, I see some of the characteristics of a pilgrim. Probably our best analogy of pilgrims is Kung Fu. Remember that? You know, he was a pilgrim, whatever, Cain, whatever his name was, as he walked through this world. And what I want to do is I evaluate these two extremes this morning, these two mindsets, these two perspectives, is just talk about some of the characteristics of being a pilgrim or of being a tourist. And I'd like to ask you to join along with me in evaluating your own life, because this is what I have to do as I speak these things. Some of the characteristics. The first one is that a tourist is basically in a hurry, right? He's basically in a hurry. He's impatient for results. What he wants, he wants it now, immediately. The pilgrim, on the other hand, is patient. The pilgrim is slow. You know, we live in a very efficient and speedy society. Even in this building, we're surrounded by a variety of different expedient things. Electric switches, for one. Some of them uh, probably cost about $10. Other switches in here, I imagine, cost about $2,000. We want more switches in our life. Among us, we like efficiency. We like a smooth and comfortable life. And there's nothing really wrong with that. Even myself, being a good Italian boy, uh, don't tell my mom this, but every now and then we uh, at home pop in an instant uh, frozen pizza. And uh, that's sort of an abomination, you know. But uh, sometimes you just have to get it now. And I don't want to knock this too much. There's a lot of value in efficiency. There's value in speed. But let me make an observation. God goes slowly in his educational process of man. God goes slowly. Forty years in the wilderness. We read about that in Deuteronomy 8. Points to God's basic educational philosophy. Now, that's not really practical in our college setting. Could you imagine picking up a college catalog, opening it up, you know, Bible major or a spiritual growth development? Required years, 40 I don't think, you know, excellent food served in the cafeteria. What is it? No, we don't know. Um, no, no. Forty years of national migration. Three generations of united monarchy. Nineteen kings of Israel, 20 kings of Judah. A host of prophets and priests. Exile. Restoration. Isn't that a rather slow way? A rather costly way for God to let his people know the covenant relationship between himself and them. Forty years wandering. An Asian theologian states in one of his books of meditation this. I want to read you a paragraph. The title of the book is The Three Mile an Hour God. Listen to what he says. Jesus Christ came. 
He walked towards the full stop. He lost his mobility. He was nailed down. He is not even at three miles an hour as we walk. He's not moving. Full stop. What can be slower than full stop? Nailed down. At this point of full stop, the apostolic church proclaims that the love of God to man is ultimately and fully revealed. God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It is an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is slow, yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. It goes on in the depth of our life. Whether we notice it or not, whether we are currently hit by the storm or not, at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk, and therefore, it is the speed the love of God walks. The people of God were taught the truth of bread and the word of God in the wilderness as they walked three miles an hour by the three-mile-an-hour God. In our perspective, we need to imitate God. We need to be patient. We need to be slow. We need to be pilgrims in this world. Frederick Nietzsche, someone I hope you don't read a lot of, in his book, he's a nihilist, an atheistic, existential philosopher. In his book, Beyond Good and Evil, he said this. Every now and then these guys hit it right on the head. He says this. What is essential in heaven and on earth seems to be, to say it once more, that there should be obedience over a long period of time and in a single direction. Given that, something always develops and has developed, for whose sake it is worthwhile to live on earth. A long obedience, consistent obedience, in a single direction. That's the walk of a pilgrim. Slowly, but towards a goal. Consistent. The tourist, he's running all over. Wants it quick. Oh, here's a good book on spiritual growth. Let me read this and grow spiritually. I'm going to have quiet time this week, ten minutes a day. Yeah. Oh, here's a, here's a new course. I'm going to take this course. What a seminar. Have you heard this preacher? Listen to this tape. Boy, I'm going to grow. Bouncing around. Never consistent. Pilgrim, though, step by step. Another comparison and contrast is that a tourist basically visits the attractive sites, right? When it's convenient. If you go on a tour, you don't want to see the slum. You want to see the mountaintops. You want to see the beautiful buildings. You just want to get in all the good stuff. The pilgrim, on the other hand, again, is consistent in his lifestyle. And what it takes for the pilgrim to be successful is work. Sometimes what he has to do is inconvenient, but it's necessary. You know, in the Old Testament, several strands of thought stand out. One of them begins in Genesis, where Adam is commanded, while still in the Garden of Eden, to till the soil. That's work. He's also asked to classify the animals that God brought to him. That's work, too. Both of these, physical and mental, are fo foreshadowed by God's own work, creating the world and people to occupy. You know, as Christians, we are called to be workmen for the Lord. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. 
The Christian life, the life of a pilgrim, is hard work. It's not a vacation. It's not being a tourist. And I'd just like to encourage you this week as you take a vacation from your schoolwork, not to take a vacation from the Lord. It's so easy to do. Another characteristic of a tourist is he likes to be comfortable. He likes to be comfortable, right? He goes into a town. He doesn't want to say, uh, stay in, in Motel 5. He wants to stay in the Holiday Inn. He wants to stay where it's nice. The Hilton. Everything in his life, he wants to be comfortable. The pilgrim, on the other hand, understands and recognizes that life is difficult. That's just part of reality. I get a kick out of what Jacob said in Genesis 47, 9 to Pharaoh. He said this, the years of my sojourning, he had that perspective, of my wandering, of my pilgrimage, are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. I don't know about that few there. <laughs> but isn't that interesting that, he, that he's just being real honest. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. He hasn't lived as long as his forefathers did. But life was hard. It was unpleasant. You know, as we read, God's people found themselves in the wilderness, away from the familiar. And wilderness can really represent a number of things. Two things that it represented to Israel, danger and promise. Danger and promise. That's the place where we go and where we learn and where we grow from God. When danger and promise come together, we call it crisis. We call it struggling. We call it trials. Danger and promise together. And the Bible does not speak simply of danger alone. If it did, then biblical faith would be nothing but protection from danger religion. The Bible does not speak simply of promise. If it did, then biblical faith would be happy ending religion. What the Bible does speak about is crisis situations, the coexistence of danger and promise together, which equals the wilderness. That's where God touches man. And the pilgrim goes beyond protection from danger religion. He goes beyond happy ending religion. He's called to trust God in the midst of a crisis where there's danger, but there's promise. The tourist, he looks for the high points. The pilgrim, he learns from everything. He travels the high mountains as well as the low valleys. And he accepts them as all part of his pilgrimage. A good example of this is found in the Apostle Paul. In Philippians 4, a familiar passage, where we read this. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have received your, revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. Any and In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. That's a true pilgrim. He can handle the good stuff. He can handle the wealth. He can handle the prosperity, but he can handle the need, the lack. A pilgrim accepts every aspect of his life as part of his pilgrimage. If you think about it, tourists are sort of rich. 
at least at that moment in time where they uh, can spend the money to go on that tour. Pilgrims, for the most part, though, are poor, or at least they have an attitude towards their riches that would reflect that type of attitude of being poor. G.K. Chesterton, a great English journalist, said this. He said, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. That's a good statement, isn't it? Are we tourists or are we pilgrims? One characteristic that I've noticed a lot as I've had an opportunity to be a tourist and to observe tourists is that they are insensitive to those around them. They're not really there to have anything to do with the people in the country or the place or the city that they're in. They're basically insensitive to those around them. The pilgrim, on the other hand, is sensitive. He's caring. He's trying to meet the needs of others. As we walk through our life, are we insensitive to those around us? Or are we concerned for the needs, the spiritual needs of others? We have some instruction on this from Paul. In Philippians 2, verse 14 and 15, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You ever been on a tour bus? What does everybody do? <laughs> Grumble and dispute. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among who you appear as lights in the world. Sensitive and caring for those around us. In Ephesians 4, the last few verses, after he's told us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. That's a pilgrim mentality. That's a pilgrim perspective. The book of Galatians, chapter 5, contrasts the deeds of the flesh with the deeds of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. And we won't take time to look at that, those this morning, but basically the deeds of the flesh center on oneself. They're self-centered. The fruit of the Spirit is other-centered. It's God-centered and other-centered. Are you a pilgrim or are you a tourist? Let me try to make this mindset clear by observing how a tourist and a pilgrim view some of the basic things in the Christian life. Let's take God, for instance. I think the tourist basically views God as a sugar daddy, someone who's supposed to do good things for them, someone who's out there basically to bless them. The pilgrim, on the other hand, views God as the sovereign Lord, the master planner, in control of everything along the way in the midst of his pilgrimage. In reference to Jesus Christ, I think the tourist views Jesus as a tour guide, a fun guy, a party guy. The pilgrim, on the other hand, views Jesus as his forerunner, as his example, and even more importantly, as his traveling companion, someone who's walking along with him. What about the Bible? A tourist mentality views the Bible, I think, sort of like a ticket book. You know, lots of good verses in there. You know, oh, this is a good verse. That's an e-ticket. Oh, genealogy, ooh, that's an A-ticket, you know. 
Just sort of a ticket book. You go to it when you want to get on a nice ride, have fun, get a spiritual blessing. For the pilgrim, the Bible is a road map. It's necessary for direction. It's essential. Reference to the church, the tourist mentality sees the church basically as his tour party. And in the midst of that tour party, he selects those that he likes as part of his group that are going to see the attractive sights. And so within the church, he finds the beautiful people, those people that are like him, and off they go and try to have some fun. The pilgrim perspective in reference to the church is that the church is a community. The church is a caravan of fellow pilgrims, some of them beautiful, some of them not, some of them fun, some of them a hassle. But we're all in it together on our pilgrimage. I always have thought how just wonderful it would be the moment we accepted Jesus Christ to be raptured. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You know, Lord, I, I know I'm a sinner and I accept you into my life. And wow, where did all this gold come from? You know, this is great. Well, there you are. What did the Lord do? He says, no, I, I'm going to leave you there. And I'm going to put you into a body, a family. And there are a lot of peculiar people. <laughs> if you think about most of your hassles, where do they come from? Other people, right? That's where we grow. The Lord's put us into a body of Christ so that we might grow and express our pilgrim perspective. What about trials? Well, to the tourists, trials are basically hindrances to fun. They're just hassles. They're nuisance. To the pilgrim, trials are a path to glory. They are those by which we grow. They are those things by which our faith is really tested to see if it's genuine. Heaven to the tourist is just another stop. Oh, yeah, we'll get there someday. We'll make it. That'll be neat. That'll be fun. To the pilgrim, though, heaven is the goal of our journey. That's where we're headed. That city whose builder and maker is God. And I think the bottom line is that for the tourist, life is basically a game. It's fun. It's a game. To the pilgrim, life is a reality. With all of the hurts, with all of the pains, and with all of the joys. But it's real. And the pilgrim takes life seriously. He takes his Christian life seriously. He thinks about the Lord. He remembers why he's here. And the fact that being here is only temporary. He's just passing through. This world is not my home. The New Testament image of the pilgrim is inward. And it involves growth in perceptions and in relationships and in actions. In the whole of one's life, it involves a whole lifetime. You know, I imagine that we all agree that Christians are called to be pilgrims. We read that in the Word. And I suspect that we would all say that we are living the life of the pilgrim. Mm, maybe not. You know, sometimes it's not easy to see ourselves. It's not easy to see our lifestyles clearly. 
especially when there's a disjunction between that which we know we are supposed to be and that which we really are. But I think growth begins by discovering where we really are. And that's why we sketch the tourist, to contrast that to the pilgrim. I think we have time to talk about a characteristic that is a little more uncomfortable, perhaps, than the tourist for us, and that is the settler. We fall into that mentality quite often. And one of the basic, let me give you a few characteristics of a settler. Remember the tourist and remember the pilgrim, but here's the settler. A settler has stopped moving. That's the bottom line. He's stopped moving, or at least he's limited his movement of growth to a fairly well-defined sphere. He's found a position, he's claimed it, he's settled down, and that's where he's going to live. And most of us don't want to become settlers. We just become comfortable. We fit. We're accepted. We share our particular group's beliefs and tastes and ways of looking at the world. And there are many advantages to being a settler. Let's be honest. It's a dangerous world out there. You never know who you might meet or how they might influence you. The world's a dangerous environment. In a secure environment, with well-defined and well-defended boundaries, there's a sort of peace. And so we settle down. We stop moving. Second characteristic to a settler is that boundaries are very important. And they often shape and define his existence. Boundaries. Boundaries also define the people that he associates with. The ideas that he espouses. The activities that he enjoys. There's a lot of different things we could talk about today in reference to boundaries. There are idea-related boundaries. They're characterized by a set of shared beliefs. They're affirmed by certain uh, people that we respect, certain doctrines that we hold, and others that we deny. And that's okay. We have to have boundaries to a certain extent. I'm not really talking about idea-related boundaries. I think attitudinal boundaries are those which are more impressive upon us. They're characterized by a set of shared feelings about certain issues. For example, worship is one of those attitudes we have. It's not always an issue of doctrine. It's an issue of, uh, of style. You know, the order of the service, the types of hymns that we sing, the acceptable sermon length and style. And the logical outcome of attitudinal boundaries is creating, in many ways, a Christian subculture which isolates its people from the non-Christian world. Approved Christian books, approved Christian music, teachers, maybe every now and then an occasional Christian movie. Boundaries, attitudinal. Boundaries artificially limit the growth for a settler as well, though, because they monitor the input so that the only input that we receive is from those who have our shared boundaries. In other words, you really don't need to think. You can just check in your door at the uh, check in your mind at the door at the church. Boundaries can lead to a shared attitude of mistrust towards those who are outside of the group. 
the settler sort of just builds that wall around his ideas and his feelings so that he lives now in a fortress instead of out on the prairie, out in the wilderness. That attitude that we are right and everybody else is wrong, that's a settler mentality. Boundaries often affect evangelism. We want others to know Jesus, but we also want them to conform their lifestyle to our set of boundaries. You see, the settler spends a great deal of time and energy devoted to the process of defining and defending boundaries. To many, Christian growth is nothing more than doctrinal minutia that he needs to know with increasing precision so that he can draw the lines of demarcation in his own fortress that he settled in. Boundaries say this far and no further. Now, the real problem is not with the boundaries themselves. No group can exist without them. The problem is when we limit ourselves to these boundaries, when we settle down, when we stop moving, when we say this far and no further. The problem comes when the boundaries define who we are rather than they being a basis for knowing and for experiencing truth. It's not the fact that the boundaries are the problem, but it's our attitude towards them. We all need certain limitations. We all have certain lines where we say this far and no further. But it's our attitude and how they affect our relationship as we are on our pilgrimage. You see, the settler is one who has accepted a set of boundaries which define and thus limit the nature and the extent of his Christian growth. Growth is nothing more than pushing the furniture around. The dimensions of his house, of his life, stay the same. Just rearranges the furniture a little bit. Are you a tourist in this life? Are you a pilgrim? Or are you a settler? Let me just mention in conclusion three distinguishing marks of a Christian pilgrim as we've contrasted that pilgrim mentality with either being a settler or a tourist. The first one is movement. Movement. Pilgrim is a man of motion. He's restless to learn. Truth is not a static statement, but it's a many-faceted jewel. He's not content to know about the truth. He wants to live it. And he patiently pursues it, constantly moving, expanding, thinking, evaluating, Whatever he comes in contact with the Word of God. Second characteristic of a pilgrim is that there is a goal. There is a goal. The presence of God. Conformity to the image of Christ. And this goal he constantly pursues. And in it he perseveres. We heard about that earlier this week. Philippians 3. 12 and four, through 14, where Paul says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting that which lies behind and reaching forward to that which lies ahead, I press on towards the goal 
for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. The pilgrim is a man of movement towards a goal. One final thing that we read about back in Hebrews 11 with that great chapter of faith and pilgrimage, and that is that there is a price to be paid for being a pilgrim. It's not a comfortable life. It's not an easy life. It's not always fun. It's not always joyous. To be a pilgrim, there is a certain sense of leaving behind, of unsettledness. We read after this chapter 11 in Hebrews concludes with going through really the whole history of Israel with some of the results of these people that chose a pilgrim mentality and perspective. In verse 35, it talks about some that were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. I like what it says in verse 38, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. That's what it meant for them to be a pilgrim, a leaving behind. For us, it might mean leaving behind some presuppositions that we have, some of those boundaries that we've drawn to protect ourselves. For some of us, it might mean leaving behind a group of friends that hold us back, that drag us down. For some, it might mean leaving behind some comfort, some security. For others, it might mean leaving behind some attitudes that we have. Because in reality, we're talking about attitudes today, aren't we? This week, as you're on vacation, be a pilgrim. Ask the Lord to remind you of what it means to live for him as a stranger and an exile in this world. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you are sovereign Lord, that you are slow, that you are patient with us. We thank you, too, that you are our traveling companion. Help us not to be tourists in our attitudes towards others and you. Shake up our cages a little bit, God, when it comes to being a settler so that we might step out in faith and walk as a pilgrim. We thank you for the privilege we have of studying your word, of being in, a, in this particular environment. Help us, though, not to get too comfortable. Help us to have an effect in this world for others and for you. Guide us now the remainder of this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.